On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, good to be with you. How are you? What do you got going on this week? Well, Bill, I'll tell you, you know, I'm really excited about today's guest. I came back from Colorado, actually, this past weekend. And I was up seeing some uh, some good friends and clients through Denver and Aspen and Vale. And this is going to sound kind of harsh, but I think it's relevant to the conversation we're going to have today. I'm sitting at DIA yesterday, about to come back to Phoenix, and mm-hmm. I'm looking around and the population in this country really looks unhealthy. And it's, it's, it's obvious. And it sounds terrible to say it. Don't mean to be mean. I'm not trying to offend anybody. But it's true. You know, those that have listened to the podcast over the last couple months or so know that in Juno's in Japan, same thing. You, you land in Japan, you land in Tokyo, you travel around that country, and the people look fit, they look healthy. And it's not just weight, it's skin tone, it's energy levels, it's pretty much everything that comes that comes with that idea of what personal health looks like. And so, you know, if you look at the stats, obesity in the United States has tripled in the last 60 years. Autism, and I don't know how much of this has to do with diet and exercise or just the health, the health you know, situation here that we've got in the United States in general, but 1971 in 10,000, I've got a couple of young kids, so it's something that, that, that I look at pretty closely. One in 54, depression levels have basically doubled in the last 10 years or so. So we're spending a ton of money on healthcare in this country. We spend more by far than any other country in the, in the entire world. And we're getting worse and worse and worse results every year. And so I've been looking at this, and I'm certainly no doctor, so take nothing that I say as, as medical advice, that's for sure. But I like following different people that are out there that are talking about this. And I've got a phenomenal guest on today, and I'm, I'm really honored that he joined me because he's got a book that just came out called Lies I Taught in Medical School. And his name is uh, Dr. Robert Lufkin. He's a medical school professor. He's been, and we're not talking about some guy that's got a chiropractor shop in, in the West of Nebraska although in many cases those people do great work, but we're talking about a, a medical school professor that served both U, UCLA and USC schools of medicine. He's had over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers and 14 books that are available in six languages. And again, he's got this new book that just came out, Lies, Lies I Taught in Medical School, and I summarized it and looked over it before our conversation today. And it's just, it kind of turns upside down everything that we have been taught lately in terms of how to keep ourselves healthy, about what kind of foods we should be eating, about the the state of the medical industry in general. And and so with that, I hope that that's a fair int- introduction, doctor. And uh, really, thank you for joining me today because I know you've got an incredibly busy schedule. And so anything you want to add to that, you want to talk about your personal story, sort of tipping over, I guess, or inverting a lot of the things that we are being told is, is common knowledge in both diet, nutrition, and also the medical industry in general. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Bill and Brent. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm a fan of your show, so it's an it's an honor to be to be on it. Um, yeah, I I think um, what you've I agree totally with what you said that we're 
I've been practicing medicine for 40 years and I've never there we've never seen anything like this. The the rise in obesity, the rise in diabetes, the rise in cardiovascular disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease. Those are all what are called chronic diseases and we're seeing unprecedented numbers of those in our population even even when you correct for the increase in population. So there's a higher percentage of those. Uh, um, and my background, at, you know, as you said, I'm I'm sort of the establishment. You know, I, I spent my my whole career as as a, in a medical institution. I was fortunate to be able to practice medicine as well as do research and teaching as a as a professor. So I'm actually a practicing physician in what I do. Um, but I, you know, I'm part of the system. You know, I my lab. Uh, raised millions of dollars from pharmaceutical companies and did research and, you know, all, all these things. And um, it only changed for me uh, just a few years ago. Uh, a lot, my life was, everything was fine. Uh, but then I came down with four chronic diseases uh, that when I went to my doctor, they, they wrote me prescriptions for each one and said, take these, you know, for the rest of your life. And uh, that will control the symptoms. And, the the problem was I was still fairly young. I had two uh, two daughters who weren't even in elementary school yet, and I realized those are the same diseases that my father had, but he didn't get them till he was almost ninety, and he died of them. So I, you know, I could do the math, and it, that story wasn't going to end well. You know, I was, I suddenly, you know, I was on the path. I I wasn't going to see him graduate from high school. So I began to. Um, I, really taken interest in this. I began reading a lot of the work that other people have done, looking at the research, uh, authors like Gary Tobbs, Nina Teicholz, um, uh, and others who began to call into question the whole paradigm for chronic disease and the way it was uh, treated in in our society and the way we continue to treat it in, in our healthcare system. And I realized that these these chronic diseases that I had and that that most Americans have, 88% of a, adult Americans are metabolically unhealthy, although they most most of them don't realize it. These diseases don't really respond well to drugs. In other words, there's there aren't drugs that um will reverse the diseases. You can treat the symptoms with drugs, but you can't make the disease go away. And for many of these diseases, the the foundation is lifestyle. And, and um, what I did, I looked closely at my lifestyle. I, I looked at the recommendations of some cutting edge research that's just coming out. And I, you know, I adjusted my nutrition, my sleep, my exercise, and my stress levels. And long story short, um, I went back to see my doctors and they, they couldn't believe it. Basically, these four diseases were reversed. They stopped the prescription medications. I'm in remission for all of them. And with any luck, I'll live <laughs> to see my grandchildren. So that was the wake up moment. And that was what uh, drove me to this. And that's what's inspired me to get this message out to other people so that uh, other people can can adopt these lifestyle techniques and and reverse the chronic diseases that that really we're all facing. Now, Rob, if you don't mind me asking, it, it ties into the first chapter of your book, which is I did everything right and almost died anyway. Uh, if you're comfortable sharing, because maybe some people are, had, are suffering or have suffered from the same chronic diseases, 
what were you diagnosed with? If you'd be willing to share that. Of course. Yeah. And I, and I talk about it in the book, so it's, it's, it's all out there. And I, and I should say, um, as a preface that my mom was a dietitian, so she worked her whole career in hospitals and a dietitian is one who specializes in nutrition. So I grew up eating the recommendations of the USDA, the federal government, the health guidelines that, that, you know, I, I ate the food that we were supposed to eat and that, that, as we'll see, contributed to it as well. But the four diseases I had were uh, a type of arthritis called gout, uh, which is related to urate, uric acid crystals. I also had high blood pressure, which, you know, over half of adult Americans have. Um, and that was treated by medicine, as was the, the gout. It treated the symptoms for that. I also had dyslipidemia, which means it just means that my my blood uh, my blood levels of fats were out of whack, uh, and that was a risk factor for for chronic diseases as well. And then the final one is this is a very common one that that most Americans are on track to becoming, and that was I was a type two, pre-type two diabetes. I was pre-diabetic for type two diabetes. In other words, my insulin, my uh, glucose levels were elevated, which is what happens in uh, type two diabetes. So what did your lifestyle look like at that point? Because obviously successful doctor, busy guy out there, you know, not somebody that's sitting on the couch watching daytime TV. Was it, was it lack of diet? Was it lack of exercise? Was it, was it what you're eating or was it all three of those? Um, all three of those. I mean, I, I did exercise a lot. I, you know, I played volleyball. I ride my bike. You know, I, I do stuff like that. So it wasn't like I was wasn't exercising, and it wasn't like I wasn't paying attention to my diet. I, you know, I followed the I followed the USDA guidelines. I followed a low fat diet. I avoided butter. I substituted margarine with seed oils and trans fats. I. Um, you know, I avoided red meat. I did all these things, but as it turns out, um, a lot of these dietary recommendations that were given then and are still given actually drive all those four chronic diseases that I had and, and many other chronic diseases. And it's interesting, the four diseases you think about it, it's arthritis and then, uh, blood pressure and other things. They seem to be completely unrelated, but as it turns out, all these four diseases, and indeed, the all the chronic diseases that determine our health and ultimately our longevity that will kill all three of us in, in large likelihood eventually in our lives are driven by underlying metabolic factors that that lifestyle drives. So it was interesting. I could fix one thing in lifestyle with nutrition and everything, and all four of the diseases went away. They went into remission. So it's that that was a real wake up call for me as well. Now you mentioned you know metabolic metabolism, those type of things. For somebody that's not a in the medical industry and has no knowledge in terms of what some of those terms mean. You know, you're, you're diving into chapter two right now, which says the metabolic lie metabolism is just the body's way of digesting food. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by metabolism? What do you mean by, by metabolic rates and things like that? Yeah. Well, when, when I went to medical school and the way metabolism is still taught in, a, in, in many ways is that it's, 
metabolism is the the way our bodies take in food and then we break down the food into component macronutrients like fat, proteins, and carbohydrates. And then these are turned into building blocks for our body for either energy or actually growth in building muscle or, or bones. And that, that was what metabolism is taught as. And what, what I didn't realize and what a lot of people miss now is that there, there have been some discoveries with fundamental molecules, longevity molecules like mTOR that drive metabolism. These weren't discovered until almost the 21st century. So they were, and they're still being worked out the details, but these, these important metabolic switches uh, actually drive not only the way food is digested, but actually control the risk of these chronic diseases and and our longevity itself. When drugs are given to turn these metabolic switches down, lifespan changes in, in experimental animals. And there's evidence that in, in humans as well, that there's a similar effect uh, by manipulating these metabolic switches. And, and we get into that in the, in the longevity chapter later on. But it, I guess the point is, is that everything is tied together. All these metabolic diseases that, that I got, and these are the top diseases that we all die of, you know, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, um, diabetes, those are the number one killers that determine our longevity, literally how long we'll live. And it's, it's fascinating that they're all driven by these metabolic drivers um, that, um, that we can control with our lifestyle. In other words, there are things we can do to these metabolic switches with our lifestyle that can't be done with drugs. You know, there are, yeah, go ahead. In, in chapter two, you talk about this tour switch, which should be oscillating between growth and repair. And based on obviously agri history of agriculture and now in terms of the type of diet we eat, it is, in, it is in constant growth mode, if I'm correct. And you're not getting that repair mode. Tell me what that does to the body and how that might impact some of these chronic diseases that we see today. Yeah, this switch, it's a fascinating switch. It's, it's one of the most important protein switches in all of biology. And its importance is, is demonstrated by the fact that it, it's conserved across billions of years of evolution. In other words, this switch is present all the way from yeast to human beings. And it's a survival switch. It does, it, it does one thing. It detects nutrients in the environment. And when nutrients are present, it tells the body to grow. And when nutrients are not present, it tells the body or the cell not to grow and instead to conserve and repair and do things like autophagy. And if you think about it, that's the most important survival uh, thing you can do. In other words, if there's food in the environment and the switch says, don't grow, I'm going to lose out and I, I'll miss an opportunity and I won't exceed, I won't excel. On the other hand, if there's no food in the environment and I turn the switch on to grow, I'll start to grow and I'll run out of food and I'll die. So this switch is fundamentally important. So, um, and, and in normal animals and in, in normal creatures, the switch, like you say, oscillates because we don't have nutrients or food all the time in our environment. Um, most animals don't, including humans, you know, for 
for hundreds of thousands of years of our development, we we likely went for periods of fasting for, you know, days while we hunted animals or other food sources, and then we would eat, and then the switch would turn off. It would go back and forth. And turning the switch on to growth is important because we use the nutrients, but turning the switch off to repair is important because it takes care. It does important functions in our bodies. It's autophagy. It's getting rid of senescent cells, but important things as well. And what you what you mentioned, and we talk about it, the book in the chapter is 12,000 years ago, something happened in human evolution that um, Jared Diamond, uh, the author who wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel, or also, or also Nuval Harari, who wrote Sapiens and several other books, both, both of these experts agree on one thing, and they say that this was the single worst decision ever made in the entire human race. And that was the, the, or the, the worst thing that was done. And that was the agricultural revolution, which when uh, plants essentially were domesticated about 12,000 years ago, more or less. And then it basically what it meant was we began growing, cultivating uh, grains largely, and these could be stored. And then it, it moved us from hunter gatherers into farmers, essentially. And many people think of this as a positive thing because it freed up time and, you know, all sorts of things happened with civilization, but metabolically and, and what these experts uh, say it, is that the thing it did, it also made food available all the time because grain could be stored. So what it did to this metabolic switch is instead of now switching off and on, off and on, people began eating all the time. In other words, they they didn't fast for a couple of days. They they ate every single day because the grain was there. Unless there was you know something like the Irish potato famine where you know everyone gets wiped out, and that's the risk of agriculture. But otherwise, it went on, and this only got worse two hundred years ago, when or so when industrial revolution happened and then refrigeration occurred when refrigeration occurred then food could would basically was present all kinds of food not just grains could be stored and was available all the time and then this accelerated in our lifetime in the last 20 years or 30 years with the advent of the junk food revolution where industrial processed food like products have taken over our stores now and most people uh, don't eat real food anymore. They eat this processed food. And there was even a, a teaching, and it's still taught. When I was taught my mom, by mom to dietitian, get up in the morning, eat a good breakfast, eat a big breakfast before you do anything else. Then midday, have a snack, then have lunch, then have a snack in the afternoon, then have dinner, and then maybe a, you know, a, a snack in the evening. Well, what does that do to this metabolic switch? It turns it all onto growth mode and um, it doesn't get any chance for repair. And growth mode, as we talk about later on in the book, this, this metabolic growth, this hyperfunction, it's good for a young animal, uh, for a child who is growing and their brain is maturing, their bones are getting longer, their muscles are growing. That's actually a good thing to be in growth mode most of the time. But what happens is as we get older, turning on growth mode uh, when our when our epiphyses are closed and our bones can't grow anymore and our brain doesn't grow anymore if you're hitting the gas pedal on this growth mode 
what happens is you begin driving metabolic diseases that um, the things I mentioned, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke. Those are diseases of hyperfunction. Cancer, you know, is, is maximal cell growth. It's, it's abnormal cell growth. Cardiovascular disease, you know, narrowing of the blood vessels, whether it's in the brain, it leads to a stroke or in the, in the heart, it leads to a heart attack. The narrowing of the blood vessels is hyperfunction. The cells accelerate and they, they grow very large. And the same thing with Alzheimer's. There's evidence that Alzheimer's disease is, is a hyperfunction repair type disease that's triggered by this. So that's, that's the, the reason that this metabolic switch is, uh, is problematic. Let's talk about that. Um, obviously you have agricultural revolution 10,000 plus years ago, industrial revolution, a couple hundred years ago, but some, and, and along with that, I, I could make the argument that between say 1900 and 2000 life expectancies increased. Now, whether that was just serious reduction in childhood morbidities, you know, because that really brought the tables down, but something really significant has happened. I would say between 1970 and 1990, because you look at, um, again, obesity rates, depression rates, you look at even now we are in a, we're in a declining life expectancy in this country now. I think that started in 2016 or 17 for the first time, pretty much in forever since the, since the country began. What happened? And if you look at any of these charts, they, they, they basically hockey stick up around 1980 to 1990. What changed during that period of time that so dramatically impacted the health outcomes, at least in the West and specifically in the United States? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question there. Um, that's that's really when everything turned around metabolically and there the 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 honest answer is no one knows but there's several suspects out there um so what happened first of all the um us dietary guidelines were put in place with the with the um imprimatur of the federal government in other words they were this is what you know, good science recommended, this is what our federal government recommended. So they recommended in a, in a sort of misguided effort to prevent heart disease, which uh, really doesn't prevent heart disease, but they recommended a low fat diet because they had demonized fat as a potential cause of heart disease, which as we've turned out, isn't really the problem. But this low fat diet when you when you think about a diet, there's only three macronutrients, right? As we talked about, there's there's protein, there's fat, and there's sugar. Um, proteins with with the different diets are pretty much kept the same, and so the only dials you have to manipulate are are fats and carbohydrates. So if you want to keep the same number of calories, more or less, if you go to a, a low fat diet and remove fats and you keep proteins constant, you have to increase the carbohydrates. So what we had was the, the beginning of a low fat, high carbohydrate diet. And the interesting thing is um, the hormone that's behind diabetes and uh, drives um, most of these chronic diseases, at least to some extent, is insulin. And insulin responds to food when we, when we eat food, but it prefer preferentially by far responds to carbohydrates. 
Fats have a uh, very little effect. Protein has a mild effect, but insulin really is designed for carbohydrates. So when we switched to a low fat diet, a high carbohydrate diet, what effect did that have on everybody? Well, it increased their insulin rates, this hormone. Insulin is a fat storage drug. It, it basically, it makes us fat. You know, anybody, I know I can make someone fat, anyone just by giving them a shot of insulin. And, you know, it tells the body to store fat. And in fact, if we don't have insulin on board, no matter how many calories we eat, we won't get fat. And you can see that in, in an uncommon type of diabetes called type 1 diabetes, where people have low levels of insulin. insulin. And these people, uh, they don't gain weight, no matter how much they eat, unless they take their insulin doses. So the first thing that happened was was diet, this low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. And, and there was all sorts of piling on with that. Basically, um, uh, the federal government began subsidizing junk food. So things like grains, sugar, wheat um, were all subsidized. So they became very inexpensive. So it was cheaper to eat junk food than it was to eat real food. Um, in the 1980s, something was introduced called high fructose corn syrup, which is a, um, a formulation of corn that replaced cane sugar and companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and all officially stopped using cane sugar and used, um, this, uh, low fat or this high fructose corn syrup. And that was a, that was a factor also. So that was one effect was basically, driving carbohydrates in the diet. There's another effect of the, the use of something called seed oils, which are sort of unhealthy type of fats, which are, uh, they, they're also known as vegetable oils. They're things like canola oil, soybean oil, corn oil. And they're actually uh, very unhealthy ind industrial oils that um, were initially developed in the 20th century as a possible lubricant for German submarines in the early 1900s. And that's how Crisco was developed. But but uh, it was later repurposed as a food product. And a lot of money was given to the American Heart Institute and the American Heart, Heart Association, rather, shows uh, still advocates uh, canola oil as a health, a heart healthy substitute. But uh, I don't believe it is. I think seed oil it drives inflammation, it drives insulin resistance, it's contributing to the problem. So what's happened, we had we, the, the world, the nation switched to a low carbohydrate uh, diet, junk food was subsidized. High carb, high, high carb diet, I'm guessing. I'm sorry, high carbohydrate yeah. diet, yeah, uh, low fat diet. The uh, seed oils were introduced um, Famously, in the 1980s, McDonald's and, and all fast food organizations switched from healthy beef tallow or lard to in their fryers to a vegetable oil, which was thought to be healthier, but is actually much less healthy. That's, that's a seed oil. That's an unhealthy oil. Um, also, at, at that time... Um, uh, so three factors with nutrition basically was was uh, the the uh, low fat diet, the high seed oil diet, and then junk food everywhere. And and now we have you know the the 
the U.S. lunch program outlaws whole milk, that children can't eat whole milk in their in their meals, but they can eat chocolate milk. They can drink chocolate milk or, you know, other types of orange juice, which are very high in sugar. So those are nutritional things. Uh, I think, in my opinion, that's the biggest driver. Stress certainly plays a role. Um, you know, sleep, sleep quantity and quality plays a role. Exercise plays a role. But I think by far the biggest driver is nutritional, the junk food, the constant eating. You know, you touch on something that I think is kind of interesting that anybody listening to this has seen this. And, and this again, this is not a criticism. It's an observation of extremely obese people with a really large Diet Coke or something like that. And you can actually, it's, again, the, 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 the stats are correlated between income and affluence levels and obesity. The poorest states in the country are also the fattest states in the country. Really, really wealthy enclaves, whether it's in New York City or you're in LA or other areas, the people tend to be a lot fitter and healthier. And that's kind of inverted from what we saw in the past. I mean, there's a stereotype of, you know, the King of England or something back three, 400 years ago that had the big belly and everything else because he had the money. He had, no, he had enough money to eat properly. Now it's completely inverted. And what, what I'm curious about, because I do think, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist. But I also and I also believe that you have to have a strong moral underpinning to sustain capitalism, because if it just turns into basically maximizing your dollars, you can get some really bad outcomes. There has to be you got to have morality behind it. Do you where what would cause a wholesale change in what the federal government is suggesting for you know, the food pyramid is a great example or having not allowing whole milk in schools, even though we knew that you know, kids have been drinking whole milk for a thousand years. It was there lobbying money behind that. Was there was there, was there money from the from the agricultural lobby? Was there money from the pharmaceutical lobby? What, what, what is, was, is there is there tie in with that change? Yeah, there there are all sorts of incentives. Some of them are, you know, perverse financial incentives. Some of it's just ignorance on the part of of doctors and educators. Everyone's very busy, and there's so much information out there. But there are famous cases that you know we talk about in the book where. Um, later on, it was found out that, you know, the, the chairman of Harvard uh, Nutrition Department was paid, uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to write articles to basically bury literature showing how harmful sugar was in causing cardiovascular disease back in the 1960s, and instead write articles about how the low-fat diet was the key to heart disease and ignoring the fact that, you know, a low fat diet actually means a high sugar diet, which is, which is harmful for that. So there's, there's those effects. And then I think there, there, there are many complex factors. If you look at type type two diabetes, it's, it's, um, there's a tremendous, it's treated with insulin is uh, the one of the drugs and it's a very expensive drug and a very profitable drug, but it's not only, not only the, the drug that's profitable, um, the number one cause of amputations in the United States is type 2 diabetes. The number one cause of renal failure in the United States and worldwide is type 2 diabetes. And that leads on to uh, dialysis units. That's a big industry. You make a lot of money on dialysis. The number one cause of blindness is uh, diabetes now. Um, so there's, there's a Hospitals make a lot of money from type 2 diabetes. Now, the 
the thing about type two diabetes, it's it's carbohydrate intolerance. Basically, our bodies can't handle the carbohydrates. So you can you can treat the symptoms by giving insulin, but you don't slow down the progression of the disease. You still get the amputations, you still get the blindness, and everything else. But that's that's the approach of the American Diabetic Association, that which is funded by the insulin business. That's the approach of hospitals today. The interesting thing is, and this has been shown by you know companies like Verda Health and and controlled clinical trials that. Uh, you can actually cure type two diabetes or put it into remission. So where you don't need any more drugs, if it's carbohydrate intolerance, all you do is you stop eating carbohydrates <laughs> and the diabetes goes away in most people. Um, there's, there's <clears throat> one type of diet is called a carnivore diet. It's sort of the extreme diet opposite of a vegan diet where you only eat vegetables and the carnivore diet, you only eat meat. Well, vegetables, have a lot of carbohydrates in them. You know, you can eat rice and and that drives your insulin and you're a vegan. But if you're a carbo if you're a carnivore, there are no carbohydrates in your diet. And interestingly, if you put someone on a carnivore diet, their diabetes goes away. Um, but it's easier in our healthcare system <clears throat> and the way our healthcare system is set up. If someone comes in my office, it's easier to write a prescription for insulin than it is to go through and explain a lifestyle change, which can take a lot of time and takes engagement by the patient. You know, they have yeah, I, to change their lives. It's not just taking a pill or a shot. You know, you're talking about, uh, if, I'd like to dive into this carnivore diet uh, a little bit more if you're okay with that. So sure. uh, my, you know, my health background, I've, I've, I've tried all kinds of different stuff and diets because I'm really curious how it impacts your body. Um, I went through a really heavy endurance phase where I did, uh, I was doing full distance Ironman. I was doing, I've done probably 15 or 16 ultra marathons. So these are beyond the 26 miles. And when I was really heavy in my Ironman stage, I said, I'm going to go full vegan just to see what happens. And you, you know, if you're training, this is also about, about 10 years ago, but if you're training 12, 15, 18 hours a week for these races, you need calories in, <laughs> you've got to consume calories to make that happen. And what I found was, is that not only was I eating, you know, rice and quinoa and all that other stuff, but, but I started eating a lot of fake food just because I was getting different cravings for stuff. So we're talking you know, fake sausages and this and that and everything else. Well, despite hours of training, my weight went up, my blood pressure at the time, my wife was pregnant with our first and I went into the doctor and I was, I mean, I was in the mode now I could, you know, I'm going to go out and swim two and a half miles, run a marathon, bike a hundred and, you know, hundred miles. I was in that kind of shape and my blood pressure was high. And, and it was a, basically an all-carb diet. And then I went back to kind of more what I thought was paleo, kind of tried to stay away from processed foods, that type of thing. This year, you know, turning 50 is blood pressure has always been something I've had to watch. I've had periods of time where it was high. I decided, you know what, I'm going to really try to cut out a fair amount of carbs. And most of my calories now, if I'm being disciplined about it, are coming from animal fats and animal protein with some carbs. I haven't kicked that carb that carb craving yet, and my problem is if I fall below 100 grams of carbs in a day, or you know, if, particularly if you get that super low, because I've done basically no carbs, you, you're talking massive withdrawals. And I, I and I've never gotten to the point where I could fully get past that with carnivore specifically. You know, I've gotten four days in the carnivore diet, and you can't, at least in my case, you can't think. Your, your body is, you know, it, it basically feels like the flu. You feel absolutely terrible. And I got too much stuff going on to, to make it, to make that final leap. Although I'm really curious about it. 
What are your thoughts on that? Because carnivore diet is a big one right now. A lot of people are talking about that. And by the way, the, when I did full carnivore for four days, I lost like six pounds like that on like a 2,500 to almost 3,000 calorie a day diet. And six pounds were gone in, in a flash. Yeah, yeah, that that's a, a known phenomenon when people switch from uh, a carbohydrate-rich diet to a low-carbohydrate diet. So their their body switches from burning glucose to burning ketones, and a name for they call that the keto flu. Um, and and um, a lot of people discuss what it's due to, but I, in my opinion, what the keto flu is. Basically, it's just withdrawal symptoms for carbohydrate addiction. I mean, I'm a junk food addict in remission. You know, I'm recovering. Uh, I, I could eat junk food all day long if I don't pay attention to it. So um, I think it, it's something that, you know, lasts a short period of time. Uh, and if you push through it and, you, and then you go on and stay in ketosis and only have a small amount of carbohydrates, it won't it won't bother you again for most people at least and for me um i'm in ketosis most of the time uh and i i like it because i feel like my brain's sharper uh i don't you know basically i i've i eat one meal a day with my kids at dinner and uh the rest of the time i'm drinking black coffee or, or water and i feel great my mind is sharp i have energy i exercise i work out and all this stuff all the time, you know, when I'm fasting, you know, 16 hours a day or something every day, but it, I do it because I feel great. If I were to consume a lot of carbs again, I'd probably go back through that. And then, then I would have to go through that keto flu thing, but I would, I would recommend, you know, try it once and just push through it. I mean, I, I have no dog in the diet race. I used to be a vegan for like 12 years or something. I did that for a while, but I was a junk food vegan. I ate rice, right. you know, I ate flour, I ate, you know, junk food, vegan things. And, and now my diet is, is, uh, much more ketogenic, low carb. Um, and, and I just eat very infrequently. What, what does dinner look like for you? I mean, how many calories are you going to consume in a meal at dinner? If you're in a one meal a day? You know, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't count calories. That's the great thing about eating one meal a day. You don't have to worry about it. You can eat, eat as much as you want, yeah. pretty much have anything you want. Uh, but I, you know, I don't eat junk food and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm six, five, 200 pounds. So I, you know, I have a big frame, uh, but, um, and so what does it look like? It's usually meat now. Um, you know, I, I eat meat, I eat avocados, I eat, you know, bowl of guacamole, you know, hummus, as long as it doesn't have seed oil in it, vegetables, I'll, you know, eat those small amount of fruit, fruit has fructose in it. And, and modern fruit is not like ancient fruit. Modern fruit is like a candy bar, you know? Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you mentioned that you mentioned that where, where, uh, and I've listened to a few other podcasts that you've been on where, you know, everything that we have is, from the commercial farming is, has been really modified. So, you know, apples used to be kind of small and a little bit sour. Now they're these giant, big, you know, very, very sweet fruits. And it's, 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 uh, it seems like it's very hard to get away from that. And the other thing I want to talk about, and you talk about chapter four of your book is sugar. And it's in, I mean, I can tell you with two young kids, because it's all at eye level, you walk into a store, it's, it's everywhere. It's like the amount of sugar that we pump into all of the food that we're selling. It's totally insane. Um, how do you, you've got kids as well. 
how what does their diet look like? Because I know that that most parents, you've got the pizza and mac, mac and cheese and chicken fingers staples, and then you've got like even the Cliff Z bars or something for a snack. I mean, this is all absolute complete garbage. When I was flying with my kids yesterday in the airport, you know, Nicholas is running, my son's running around trying to grab all these things, and I'm like, buddy, I was like, this is just garbage. You know, we're not buying any of this stuff for the, for the plane. What do you? What's some advice for parents in terms of sugar intake? Or, or food in general for their kids, if we're talking, say, between two and 10 years old? I think, I think it's, it's really challenging. I mean, my kids are a little bit older than that, but they go to their elementary school and they get served uh, when they have breakfast there. It's orange juice, which is like a candy bar. You know, it's very right. unhealthy. You know, uh, they get a bowl of cereal, which is junk food. Uh, and they, and then they get chocolate milk and, you know, all the, like you say, um, brown sugars in everything. And, um, so it's, it's, it's a battle with the kids. I, what I try to do is, uh, kind of live my life showing them, uh, rather than dictating how they eat, because it's at least it's been my experience. It, it's, it's very difficult to control all those influences. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I try when I can, but it, it's, it's very difficult. So I, I try to show them by the way I eat. One thing as I can control is what's around the house. So right. we limit, you know, limit the type of high sugar junk food in the house, but, and, um, to challenge, seems- I agree. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you know, in terms of a lot of the things that I've that I've read that you've put online and and listened to you talk about, um, if if there's simple steps that people can take, you're talking seed oils, basically eliminate that if you can, um, sugars, added sugars, things like that, eliminate that if you can. So you're kind of back to real food. And I believe you had posted this maybe a few a month or two ago on LinkedIn, where if you ask yourself the question, did this exist in our society prior to the year 1900? You know, because eggs absolutely existed. You know, milk definitely existed. A steak existed. You know, salads, greens, leafy greens existed. But when you start getting into a lot of this different engineered food, it didn't. And if if that if that becomes your baseline, that at least is a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think there was something that was I said about uh, if you if you avoid eating any. Food, if we avoid eating any food that didn't exist 150 years ago, most of us will experience a marked improvement in our health. What does that say about our current food supply? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. ab- absolutely. Ju- it just shows how junk food with seed oils, um, refined carbohydrates, sugars, and, and sugars is not only sugar, but it's also flour, uh, rice, those things. Have have dominated our food, but there's one other food group that I've that I've added that um, uh, is grains also, and I think it's it's something that um, people aren't aware of. It doesn't get enough attention in the harm that grains can do for for many people, at least in their diets. Now you know, as as kind of following up, I guess, with this discussion about kids. You mentioned in um, chapter five of your book, the fatty liver lie, there's no no treatment for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But you mentioned in in this book that you know, in the past, fatty liver was something, you got a hardcore alcoholic that comes in and they've got fatty liver. Now you're seeing, then you start seeing fatty liver in people that didn't drink. And that was a big question in terms of why that was the case. And now you're seeing fatty liver in kids that have never had alcohol. 
Is this basically because the food sources and what and between the sugars and the seed oils and everything have become so toxic that you're damaging the liver, which is on this overdrive trying to cleanse your body? Am I on the right track with that? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, fatty liver disease has been around forever, but it was caused by alcohol. In 1980, a new disease appeared that had never been described before. And like you say, it was it was fatty liver in people who didn't drink alcohol, including children. And uh, it's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And today, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease has completely eclipsed alcoholic fatty liver disease. In fact, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the number one cause for liver transplants. Wow. So it's it's the number one thing. And this thing didn't that, exist 40 years ago. It didn't exist before 1980. What happened in 1980? Well, high fructose corn syrup appeared on the scene. We shifted to all this diet. And the liver is a the liver does a lot of things, but one of the things it does, it, it protects our body from toxins. Like alcohol is a toxin. That's why it goes to the liver to be to be metabolized. There's one type of sugar. Um Table sugar, of course, is made of, of glucose and fructose, of two, two sugar types there. Fructose, is, glucose can be used throughout the body and it's metabolized everywhere. Fructose, though, is only metabolized in the liver. And that's because liver fructose is harmful and the liver detoxifies the fructose using similar mechanisms as the liver detoxifies alcohol. And that's why it produces fat and fibrosis. If you drink too much fructose, just like if you drink too much alcohol, that's how you get the fatty liver disease. And um, it, it's remarkable that uh, according to one study of uh, recently done on 11,000 people that had CT scans for, for normal for screening, 50% uh, of the adults had fatty liver disease on the CT scans, but most radiologists don't don't comment on it or read it out because one, they don't measure the liver fat. So unless it's really dramatic, they don't comment on it. And two, they're not really aware of the of the problem. This isn't on a lot of people's minds. Interesting. And now let me talk about cancer a little bit here as well. What are you finding in terms of um, what you're seeing with cancer rates? And, and I don't know the answer to this, but are cancer rates generally increasing? Are they flat or are they, what's happening? What's happening with cancer incidents now? Yeah, we go we go go into that a little bit in the book. You know, Nixon famously declared war on cancer in uh, the you know in the nineteen seventies and and set up the National Cancer Institute and you know lots of money's been spent on cancer. The cancer numbers, depending on how you look at it, um, they you know they can either be slightly up or slightly down. But I guess the the take home message is that. Despite all the things we've, all the treatments we've developed, cancer really hasn't significantly changed. In other words, are we winning the war on cancer? No, we're not. And, um, and that's a problem. And one of the drivers for cancer, certainly not the, not necessarily the, the cause for it in all cases, but a strong risk factor is metabolic disease. It used to be that tobacco was the strongest, most powerful environmental risk factor for cancers. Today, obesity is now beginning to surpass tobacco use as the leading environmental risk factor for cancer. And all the things, the, the, the mTOR switch, the metabolic switch, 
drives cancer. Um, the drugs that suppress mTOR are used to treat cancer. Um, the type 2 diabetes, uh, the insulin resistance, the inflammation, the metabolic unhealth, those people have a much higher risk of cancer. So it's, it's all tied together there. And these lifestyle changes will improve your metabolic health and decrease your cancer risk. And for certain types of cancers, even very strongly. Now, I guess I'll, I'll wrap up with this. And so your book, I would strongly encourage everybody to go out and buy it. It's Lies I Taught in Medical School. And um, it, it, it is so much here more. We could go for another hour talking about a lot of the information that you have. But if you're a person that's listening to this, and, and I look at it this way, you know, if you're sick, that's really hard. If you're healthy, that's also really hard because you're make, just making different decisions during the day. In, in the financial world, if you're in a ton of debt, that's actually really hard. Uh, if you're if you're making decisions about maybe not spending some money, that's also hard. So the reality is, is that all of these choices, none of them are easy. You can choose to take a pill and it might make the symptoms go away, but then you're still living in that state that got you into the doctor in the first place. And so the question is, which hard do you want to pick? But if you've listened to our discussion first, I would say definitely go out and get the book because it's going to, I think it's really going to illuminate a lot of um, things that we that we take as as truth that just, you know, if you look at the world around you, it's just not true. You know, the fact that population is not getting healthier, population is not getting more fit, kids are not doing better, depression is not going down. We're getting negative, negative outcomes. So whatever we're doing, whatever these changes have been in the last 40 years, we're getting negative results. It's negatively correlated, you know? And, and so you've got to start being able to maybe look at some things a little bit differently. I think your book will certainly do that. But if you're a person that's listening to this right now and they've got a chronic illness, maybe they got some high blood pressure, maybe they're you know, pick whatever, any number of these things that are, that are unfortunately impacting the country right now, where do you start? Because I think that's the big thing. You know, you've, you've, you've obviously written a lot. And the one thing I wrote a book would not related to finance or anything, but it's, if you look at the task in front of you in one fell swoop, it's just too, it's too monumental. You can't do it. But if you pick one small thing that you can do that can get you on track and then make another positive decision and another positive decision. So aside from reading your book, if you're someone out there listening, saying, hey, I've got to get healthy, I've got to make changes because what I'm doing is not working. What do you do? Where do you start? If I had to do one thing uh, to recommend to people, it would be junk food to consciously make the choice of avoiding junk food. Uh, shop on the edge of your supermarket, not in the middle. Don't buy anything at a 7-Eleven. <laughs> it's very, it's hard to avoid junk food, but if you make a conscious effort and avoid junk food, you'll begin cutting out the refined carbohydrates, the seed oils, the grains, because all those, that's what junk food is basically. Any of the ultra processed foods, step one, cut that out. Yeah. And yeah. one thing, one thing that we didn't touch on as much during this conversation is, you know, a lot of people think, well, you got to go work out more. And, and I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. I think that you do, but you've all, your body's got to, they go hand in hand. You know, if you're working out a lot, you're feeling good. And that all that automatically leads you to making better decisions about, you know, what you're, what you're going to be eating that day. But, um, but you've got to get to that point where, where you, you feel good enough to get up, get up off the couch and and I agree with you in terms of in terms of the ultra processed food. A anything else? And and what now? What if you're going to into a doctor? And this is something that's always frustrated me is when I when I was running borderline high blood pressure. And by the way, since I've gone to heavy animal protein, animal fats, 
and done a little bit more weightlifting as opposed to just really intense cardio, my blood pressure is down 15, 10 to 15 points each side. And on, wow. on a, a lot of fat, you know, like I actually, I had, I had a filet this morning. That's what I ate for breakfast. Uh, and usually have eggs in the morning. I'll usually have, I probably have red meat four or five nights a week and fish, fish the other two nights. Uh, and, and all of these numbers have kind of the blood pressure significantly. Cause that's, that's one that I always had to really watch, but what are, what are, what are some other, uh, we, so we, we eliminate the, the ultra processed foods. What is, but then the problem is you go into, you go into the doctor's office I'm kind of, and I'm sorry, I'm going extreme conscious on you here, but you go into the doctor's office. And when I was, was running with potentially as higher, the normal blood pressure doctor said to me, and like my doctor, he's great. But he basically said, well, you know, we could put you on a low dose of high blood pressure medication. I didn't want to do that. And so I wore the monitor for 24 hours and it was high during the day. It's, it got low enough at night that they basically said to me that, look, you know, your numbers are stable enough here that, you know, you're probably okay, but we got to watch it. No one said to me anything about what I'm eating except reduce salt. And because I'm eating so much red meat, my salt intake has gone up dramatically. So basically I've done the exact opposite. Of what of what the doctor would tell me to do, um, any thoughts? Any thoughts on that? Because you know we're, we're being told a lot of things in this world that you're that you, you look around the world around you and you real you know what you're being told is not at least it's not accurate because the results are very different that you see around you. Yeah, what, one what, thing what you every everybody agrees on is have a healthy lifestyle and to eat healthy. The problem is nobody agrees on what eating healthy means. Right. Or some doctors will say it's low fat, you know, high sugar, high carbs, junk food. They, they won't say eat junk food, but they'll say eat a high carbohydrate diet. Other people will say low carb. Um, the, uh, as far as the high blood pressure, I was surprised on a low carb diet. When you switch to low carb diet, one of the symptoms is lightheadedness. And that's because blood pressure drops when people go on a low carb diet. I noticed it and you noticed it, you noticed it too. So Treating blood pressure, the first thing you can do is go on a, a, a low-carb diet and your blood pressure will go down because your metabolic health is returning and blood pressure is a symptom of metabolic health. If I could, Brent, just mention one more thing about food, Please. a simple thing people can do if they go, look, I love junk food. I'm not going to stop going to 7-Eleven. I've got something else they can do and they don't have to change what they eat. An even easier thing to do, perhaps, or a simple thing, maybe simple but not easy, but is to limit the time you eat, limit the eating window. In other words, stop snacking. There are no healthy snacks for you. <laughs> and <clears throat> every time you eat, you drive inflammation in your body and eating is, is normal, healthy, but we shouldn't do it all the time. So eat breakfast, then don't eat till lunch eat lunch, then don't eat till dinner. And when you're done with dinner, brush your teeth and don't eat the rest of the, until morning the next day. That in itself will improve, improve your health. And if you, you know, and then even, you can even experiment with dropping one of those meals. I should say just as a caveat for, for anyone who's under the care of a physician for chronic disease, uh, before you do dramatic changes with your diets or even your lifestyle, you should you should talk to your doctor. If you're if you're on insulin, you you don't want to suddenly switch to a low carb diet because then you won't you may not need the insulin as much anymore or blood pressure medicines like we talked about. Got it, got it. Well, doctor, I, I know you're a busy man, and I really appreciate you taking some time to speak with me. And again, book is uh, lies I taught in medical school. 
Um, but how else, if people want to learn about your work, how else do they find you and, and learn more about what you're talking about? Because you're pretty active. You're on podcasts quite a bit. You're out there. Uh, I, you know, I see on LinkedIn as, as well, uh, promoting a lot of your thoughts and ideas. How else can they reach you and what else should they know about your work? Sure. Um, my website is Robert Lufkin, L-U-F as in Frank, K-I-N-M-D.com. I'm on uh, social media, Twitter, Instagram, uh, threads, LinkedIn. My daughters are pushing me for TikTok. I haven't pulled that trigger yet. <laughs> Make a ban next year. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, <clears throat> check that out. Um, I'm sorry, X, not Twitter anymore. X now, um, that's true. Yeah. If people want to, I. You want to try my book out? I mean, you can get it from the library, or if you want to try it out, you can get a free. Uh, you can download the first chapter either on an audio version or a or an ebook version. Just go to my website and go robertlufkinmd.com slash the word chapter, and then you can you can download the f- first chapter. See if you like it. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for having this discussion with me. And I think I think it's a really important topic because honestly, the the unifying thing with everybody across every socioeconomic. Uh, you know, part part of our society around the world is if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And uh, I, I love what you're coming out coming out with, and at least turn at least educating people and maybe some decisions they can make which might help them in that regard. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thank, thanks, Brett and, and Bill, and thanks for having me on the podcast. And and thanks also to you for the great work you're doing with this program and educating people. Thank you. Well, that was an absolutely fantastic discussion. I really enjoyed listening to it. And I've got a personal confession to make here in that carbs have been my enemy for years. And I've been told repeatedly, if you want to lose the 20 pounds, drop your carbs now. And and it's easily said, it's very difficultly done, if you will. Hard. I'm curious, so is there a distinction in your mind, Rob, between a complex carb and a simple carb? I mean, is is there such a thing as a good carb? Yeah, I mean, there there are certain carbohydrates in in plants like fiber that our bodies don't digest. We don't metabolize, but they, they play an important role in the GI tract, in feeding the microbes in our GI. So that that kind of fiber is good. Now, arguably carnivores don't get that kind of fiber and they they do fine, you know, like the Inuit or the Maasai. There are there are cultures that for thousands of years never eat carbs and they're or very low amount of carbs and they're fine. But those those kind of carbs are good. For me, what I identify as a bad kind of carbohydrate is a carbohydrate that will drive insulin because insulin is what is pushing all these metabolic buttons or many of them in us. So um, it's going to be certainly refined, refined carbohydrates, the sugars, of course, no question. But then starches, many people, they go, I avoid, I avoid sugar. I never eat sugar. And I go, what are you eating now? I'm eating a loaf of bread. I'm eating some bread. Well, bread is starch. It's basically glucose molecules put together. So in our, you know, in our mouths, literally the enzymes convert starch to sugar. So it, it also involves, you know, flour, wheat, uh, all those kinds of things that that contain starch that are then converted into glucose. So it's it's a pretty broad it's a pretty broad path. As other than fiber, other than dietary fiber, uh, I avoid carbs pretty much as much as I can. 
Wow. Well, that Robert Lufkin, md.com slash chapters. Is that how uh, we access the first chapter? Correct. Fantastic. Brent, thank you for having Rob on. That was a, that was a, truly a really interesting discussion. Well, I think it's, again, I think it's really important and it, it concerns me looking around and, uh, and seeing just how unhealthy a lot of people are. And, you know, my wife works in the medical industry. And so I, I, I get a lot of, uh, stories from her and, and, Again, you know, every decision, I, I said it before, but living in, in a way that, we, that you're more aware of what you're putting in your body and what it does to your body, you know, how, how your body responds to it. It's hard, but the alternative is hard. It's harder. You know? And so I just, it's just something that, that, I, that I wish people would take a, take a look at and, um, and maybe ask some questions about what they're doing in their own lives. And, and I, I'm certainly not perfect in that regard, but it's, it's been an interesting journey for me because my, my my views on health and nutrition have trained, changed pretty dramatically in the last five or six years. Yeah. No, it is. It's interesting. And you're right. There are different kinds of hard, different kinds of choices that we all have to make. And uh, this is one of those choices we have to take a look at and decide what works for us. And uh, good luck on that exactly. part. <laughs> so everybody, we'll, we'll close that on that, but read the book. Book's awesome. And uh, it will definitely challenge a lot of what you've been taught and what you're what you think about how you should fuel your body and what this health journey looks like for you. All righty. Thank you, Brent. And thank you listener for listening to this podcast, smart money simplified. If you're a new listener and you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that this next episode forthcoming will be automatically delivered to your listening device. And then you won't miss an episode. We also humbly ask that you share and rate the podcast in doing so you will help others find it. I'm Bill Tucker on behalf of Brent Mikosh and MP Advisors. Thank you again for listening. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.